Namaste, everyone. Welcome to the Charbuk Podcast. This is your host, Kushal Mehra. And today's discussion is going to be very interesting because this is my first attempt. I'm going to be trying to do a series of such discussions where we try to understand different... Uh, in Sanskrit, we have this word called drishti. So drishti basically means a gaze, a gaze of how you look at the world. So... I came across Carl uh, actually on the Brown Pandit's podcast where I heard him speak. And then from there, I actually started going and checking out Carl's podcast, which is uh, the Silk and Steel podcast. So, Carl, uh, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So, Carl, uh, I know I've already mentioned about your podcast, but for the listeners uh, who are going to be listening to you for the first time, at least on my podcast listeners, why don't you tell everybody a bit about yourself? Oh, sure. Um, so, I uh, I was born in China. Um, I, I grew up in China until I was 13 years old. And then I came to U.S. to join my parents. And I lived in U.S. for... Ooh, last 29 years, uh, actually the last 30 years. Uh, and now I'm in Bali, Indonesia. Uh, and I run a podcast, as you mentioned, Silk and Steel podcast, uh, primarily focused on China, you know, everything China related, as well as, uh, you know, China, China's relation with neighboring countries. Um, so, I, you know, India is one of them. And uh, I, I'm, I'm expecting that's why you brought me on the show to to kind of talk about the Chinese perspective. Uh, not only that, actually. So what I wanted to understand from you is something broader. So what happens is uh, I when I decided to do these series of discussions, I actually wanted to talk about everybody's perspective. So let me put it to you in, in, in my own way. Every culture okay. has a good Every culture has a unique perspective. Every culture has a unique history of how they look at the world. So that's why I used in Sanskrit, there is a word called drishti. Or in English, we could call it the gaze. So there must be a definitive Chinese gaze, how the Chinese perceive the world. So what, what I wanted to do was I wanted uh, not just to focus on India per se, although we can start with India and how China perceives India in its foreign policy decisions or in, in, in terms of a general level, you know, so there are multiple layers in every society, right? There is a generic societal layer. Then there is a foreign policy layer where the politicians and the elites of the society look at each other. Sure. So how I wanted to divide this was we can start with the Chinese gaze when it comes to India. Then in part two, I wanted to get into the Chinese gaze in, in terms of uh, their individual relations with the Asian continent itself. And then we look at the larger Anglosphere and the West. So let's start with the first one. So could you tell us when it comes to the Chinese perspective, how does the Chinese uh, society and the Chinese intelligentsia look at India? Okay, so before I start, I want to put out a disclaimer. Um, you know, I am speaking for myself, from my personal experience. Obviously, there's 1.4 billion Chinese people, and each one of them probably have a slightly different interpretation. So I can only give from my perspective uh, through my life experience. Um, and as I mentioned before, I was born and grew up in China. I grew up in China throughout 1980. So this was the time when um, you know, when I first became aware of India as, as I was growing up in China, you know, India is this other ancient 
Asian civilization, right? It has it, it's it, it's it's history. Civilizational history is just as long as China's, and that the, the you know the both countries have have gone through some hard times, gone through the uh, the period of colonialism, and uh, th that just recently post uh, World War Two emerged to be, become independent nations. And, and so there were a lot of similarities and there were also, you know, there's uh, the cultural ties of Buddhism. Um, you know, I'm, I, my grandma is a devout Buddhist and, and we all know that, you know, Buddhism came from India, there's a transmission Mission via the Silk Road that it came to China. Um, so, so, so India in the Chinese imagination was this uh, uh, almost like this magical land where uh, you know it has a lot of ancient wisdom. Uh, you know, it's it's very very old, as old as China, and you know a lot of it's a land where a lot of the great religions originate. And, and also another uh, factor is Bollywood, because even in 1980s, you know, Bollywood was already famous in China. Uh, you know, like uh, I think China started to import uh, Indian films uh, back in 1950s during the brief uh, India-China honeymoon period, and then. Uh, then you know, obviously, after the the, the relation turns turns sour, and plus China was in turmoil, cultural revolution, there was a stop stoppage. But by the time when I was growing up, this was post cultural revolution, um, in like in nineteen eighties, Indian films again are made. Yin Row into China. Um, what I so one, one of the famous uh, Indian movie that everybody know know back in 1980s was uh, the Caravan, uh, and I think uh, people from that era in China they all they all know how how to hum the theme song from the Caravan. <laughs> um, and that was, I think, the, like a 1970s Bollywood movie. Um, and then, and then, as my understanding, you know, before I left China to the United States, that, that India was on a similar developmental level as China, right? The, the, in the 1980s, both countries were considered third world uh, in the developing world. And and they're both countries are kind of trying to develop and catch up with with a more developed world of the West. And that 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 is kind of my understanding of India as a a child growing up in China. And then when I came to United States, of course. You know, I have more access to a little bit more information, and uh, and 
I I actually my um my best friend from high school. He is the he's Tamil from Chennai. Um, you know, his family. He has a similar background as me. He, his family immigrated to United States when he was uh, when he was young. He was eight or nine when he he came to U.S. So I was thirteen, and uh, we, we so we have that shared experience. And I, I was often invited to to go to his house. Um, so from like an Asian American experience, uh, you know the almost the, the Chinese. American experience and the Indian American experience is very similar, you know, but both groups are uh, mostly have a lot, like there's a huge emphasis placed on education. And, you know, many, many of the Indians in US are professionals, you know, doctors, uh, primarily uh, doctors, lawyers, and now uh, IT professionals. Mm -hmm. I also work in IT, so I work with a lot of. Now uh, I work with a lot of Indian coworkers straight from India, not Indian Americans, but but Indian Indians. Um, so that that's when I started to encounter like a a different perspective, like for the Indian perspective, or, or or as you say, the the Indian gaze, right? And and mm -hmm. um, and one thing I uh, so I. We, I was not even aware that, uh, I mean, when I was growing up in China, I was vaguely aware that there's some border issue between, between India and China in the past. Uh, but uh, on the whole, you know, the Chinese society in the 80s, Eighties, I, I don't think really pay a lot of attention to India. I mean, a lot more attention is paid being paid to the West because in nineteen eighties, you know, again, is China first time opening up after ten years of cultural revolution, um, and, and and Chinese people are are. You know, for uh, again, you know, going abroad to study, like my parents, like coming to the United States, and as always, I was saying, uh, you know, in in 1980s China, India is viewed as kind of the kind of the equal of China in in Asia in terms of its civilizational strength and as mm -hmm. well as the kind of the, the, the colonial experience that you went through. Um, and then, and then, but again, you know, that's, that's kind of about the extent of people in China. I think the general public is aware of India. There's, there's, there's a little bit kind of marginal awareness of some, some issue in the past. And then, um, but on the whole, you know, people know about Indian movies, of course, through Bollywood. But other than that, there's really not too, I don't think there's too much understanding of India within China. Um, so I was saying that 
you know, like since I have left China, since I, I left China in 1990 for United States, um, and during this period of time when I was spending in the U.S., China itself changed a lot. Um, so with that change, I think the perception inside China of India also evolved as well. Because mm -hmm. uh, so I would, that's why I was saying that um, in 1990s, uh, you know, China has gone through a quite bigger transformation, especially built upon the economic liberalization that originated in 1980s. Uh, that you know, China has really transformed its economy, um, and and it was, you know, the, the development in China was gaining speed, right? So and and in, and that has continued throughout the 2000s and 2010s. So in, in so people in China start to become aware of the gap between India and China. And, and this is also the time, um, you know, of, oftentimes in the West, especially the Anglosphere that, uh, you know, India and China was in side by side comparison, uh, you know, especially in talking about the, you know, because both nations are very populous, you know, like has huge base population. Both nations were, yeah, have, uh, yeah, both, both nations are, you know, have a, uh, you know, in the developing world, trying to develop their own economies. Uh, but then, you know, there's a much talk about governance, a different mode of governance. As we know, India is a democracy and China is under one party rule under the Chinese Communist Party. And the, you know, in the, in the, in the English media in the West, in the English language media, uh, that India and China is often used used to um, almost draw a moral lesson, right? They so say like, okay, both are developing, but you know, some so say, why is China developing faster than India? And then, then there's a counter argument is that, you know, the, uh, while China might be the hare versus, uh, versus the tortoise, tortoise that was India, but eventually India has long, long, long term, longer term potential because, you know, India doesn't have to deal with, um, uh, you know, the political transition and then uh, the, uh, especially, you know, India already has a vibrant democracy that it has basically political stability, right? And, and it doesn't have to worry so much about uh, political unrest uh, in, in, in case of tra uh, political transition, like, like in former Soviet Union. Uh, because for a long time, people kind of expect China would follow the steps of USSR um, you know, essentially leading to some kind of collapse, right? And then, then the argument was that you know, in the in the longer terms, you know, India has more stable political envir environment, which will enable India to catch up and maybe even surpass China's development. So that was the argument that was being made in '90s and 2000, and that that I am aware of mostly in the Western media, you know, in, in publication like Economist, Wall Street Journal, so on and so forth. Um, whereas uh, in China, that argument has already also been made by kind of the liberal wings of the Chinese intellect, intelligentsia, uh, because, you know, they, there's little, some dissatisf dissatisfaction among the liberal wings of 
uh, Chinese intelligentsia about you know censorship and, and party control within China. So they kind of like to use India to contrast favorably against China. Now, now there's the other side in China, you know, the more nationalist uh, faction. They would use uh, India as India's development, economic development with China, and, and and show that you know China has has pulled ahead since uh, you know since 1950s. Uh, Till now, and and their argument is that you know China, if China does not have basically have the same economic development as that of India, so the, the, the two sides are going back and forth. In the you know, this is a debate within the Chinese intellect intelligentsia sphere. So in a way, they talk about India not as really they're not an idea as an abstraction. Um, and they use India as a foil to really talk about China's own domestic issues. Um, I think this is, I think the same was, is done in English language media. Um, and and uh, that, that brings us to kind of today, right? You know, we're in 2020 right now. Now in 2020, you know, China has, has, has reached a point where it's poised to kind of, it's now a, almost like a middle income country, right? And, and, and it's now the aim of China is really to reach, um, again, there's not much, too much attention being paid to India within China. You know, more attention is still being paid to the US, to, to European Union, and even Australia, right? Because these are the countries that the, the Chinese middle class aspire to be. They aspire to, you know, maybe live either like the, like the people in those developed countries, or they themselves would like to migrate there and live there, and and so India only enters the Chinese imagination then uh, in again in two 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 spaces. One Bollywood movies, you know, Bollywood movie has made much inroad into into a uh, main mainland Chi Chinese market in more recent years. Uh, they're still very very popular inside China. And two is uh, when there, whenever there's a border conflict, right, with India, and then that kind of tension and brought back to the to the India-China relations. And you know, the, the, you know, as you would probably understand, you know, like that that gets a lot of people very emotional, and and then um, and then just basically a lot of people talking shit uh, online about about India and and uh, and so on and so forth. You know, among the general Chinese populace you know, at the street level, there's very little understanding of India. That's kind of kind of how I, I see it. Um, I mean, there, there are a lot of, uh, of course, there's a lot of armchair generals <laughs> online, you know, who, who um, you know, pontificate about, you know, bigger things like geopolitics, but really like that, as we understand, you know, China, um, in terms of foreign policy, as we know, you know, China is one party state. So, you know, like the, there's a general public and the general public opinion of Chinese foreign policy. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily reflect the actual foreign policy that gets carried out by the Chinese state, you know, because, you know, Beijing can just pretty much do whatever it wants. Um, and, and then, you know, the public will basically accept it. I mean, even there's, there's not too much public input, so to speak, into in terms of Beijing's foreign policy directives. And in terms of uh, foreign policy, uh, you know, China, this is where, okay, this is where maybe we can talk about perceptions. Because, um, you know, 
during the throughout the Cold War, you know, the Chinese public is has all, also been prepared and shaped by a lot of the Cold War rhetorics. Uh, in this case, in the aftermath of 1962 um, China-India War, right? So, so there are the 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 in in the imagination of the Chinese broader Chinese public, they feel that. Um, India, symbolized by Nehru, uh, is ruled by this class of uh, class of elite that were basically colonial holdovers from the British India days. Uh, you know, all these people from the from the from the British India bureaucracy uh, that they just inherited this kind of uh, kind of the British colonial mentality, and and they feel that's why. You know, Nehru was very, been very inflexible in dealing with uh, China on the border issues. Uh, now, you know, we all know that, of course, you know, Nehru tried to be very, very friendly with China in the early 50s. Um, but you also have to understand that part is uh, less known so to speak, to the general Chinese public, you know, what, what, what now, you know, the general public, Chinese public's memory of this war or this conflict with India is heavily shaped by uh, the 1962 war, right? So, so from their perspective, what they've been told by Chinese state media, et cetera, is that, uh, you know, Nehru symbolizes uh, kind of the, the colonial holdover from the British India days, and they harbor the same uh, kind of the imperialistic expansionist design on China, particularly on Tibet, and then that that um, and that the uh, uh, you know that Nehru was being unreasonable in in in, in his inflexibility of 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 the border issues, and that's what led to the war in 1962. Um, you know, because I'm sure a different story has been, a different narrative has been shaped inside India itself. But in, in, I'm talking about in China, the perception, the public's perception that had been shaped is that uh, that India had been causing, uh, you know, the border tensions from 1959 uh, after the Tibetan revolt up to 1962, the the, the China-India War, and that the Mao's uh, authorization of 1962 war was basically um, a, like a punitive expedition, like, uh, you know, kind of teaching India a lesson, so, so to speak. And, and then, and then that, again, you like, when I was growing up in 1980s, the memory of 1962 war was already faded. I mean, there was not, there's, in 1987, there was a brief uh, border flare up. I, I remember that because I was, um, I was like, I was 11 or 10, 10, 10 or 11 years old uh, in a barber shop. And I remember there was a People's Liberation Army a soldier who came to get get his haircut, and he was very excited about being posted to Tibet because he he's, he's talking about this new border tension between India and China, and he was very gung ho about 
about, you know, possibly there will be, he will see some action. So that's how I knew as an 11 year old about, you know, the, the India China tension. And that's the first time I heard about the McMahon line and so on and so forth. Um, but a lot of the information I had to look up later online when I was already in the US. Uh, and in the 80s, there's not too much awareness of that seep into the consciousness of general Chinese public yet. I think to nowadays is quite a little bit different because you know we're in 2020. People, uh, the whole generation of internet generation has grown up. You know, like a lot of people can get on the internet and, and search and, and and find for more information on it. And there's a lot more awareness of the 1962 war uh, currently among the among the younger Chinese Chinese population, and and they they you know. Again, you know, you have to understand. There's a uh, 1962. That was that was begin. That was around the time of Sino-Soviet split during the Cold War, right? And and also India was aligned with Soviet Union. So you know, so it, a lot of the narratives about India and also Soviet Union around that time was kind of shaped around the Cold War narrative. Um, and but but that that has a holdover effect because uh, for a long time that's the only information that's available and uh, you know people probably a lot of people in China probably wasn't even aware that in 1950s that Zhou Enlai actually offered Nehru to uh, basically trade trade the land the disputed land in the eastern sector you know south of McMahon line for the western sector Aksai chain if you tell the chinese youngsters that they will probably shock they, they, they probably don't even know i only find out about that after i came to us when i read more um, information on china india war i know by chance there was a copy of uh, uh neville maxwell's uh, india china war in my school's library and, and, and that's how I first time uh, became like aware uh, more comprehensively about this issue. Like before, I you know I have a general idea, but I didn't really know what what really what really went down, what happened. Um, and and you know a lot because again, Neville Maxwell relied uh, on a lot of um, Indian archive, Indian sources available to him, and. I, I don't think a lot of the, the information was even made uh, widely available inside China. I know I know his book was translated at some point into Chinese. Uh, you know, it was ordered by uh, by Mao to be translated, but only very limited circulation among like the the Chinese uh, decision makers and and you know some upper echelons of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, you know, now maybe I'm not sure what the status of now. Now, now people might be able to find it on the internet, but the the I, I highly doubt many people even even read it. And and so so in a way, um, the the I think the the India China relation is not at least from the Chinese public perspective is not as heavily influenced by the memory of 1962 conflict because many Chinese public, you know, was that, that that memory didn't really stick 
I mean, in the Chinese consciousness. And, and then, um, you know, like in terms of India's domestic development, I think, uh, uh, you know, most Chinese publics are not very conversant on the, you know, different Indian political parties and the Indian political climate. Just as, you know, like maybe the Indian pop populace would not be very familiar with uh, the, the, the domestic political issues in China either. And so, so in terms of, uh, you know, the, the foreign policy, Chinese foreign policy today, there's a big drive by the Chinese President Xi Jinping um, to have the so-called uh, Belt and Road Initiative, right, which is kind of revive the ancient Silk Road and build a lot of the infrastructure projects, especially ports and, and roads in neighboring countries. So, so in this aspect, China very much want to sign on India to get like kind of India's approval for this project to, to, to kind of hoping India will, will hop on this bandwagon. But, you know, India, as we know, is very reluctant. I mean, maybe for good reasons, because uh, within India, there's always uh, always uh, uh, some some apprehension about you know possible uh, you know like the, the flooding of, of Chinese goods and Chinese capital into India and, and and to erode Indian domestic industry so on and so forth and and also on top of the strategic concerns right um, uh, just going back I mean I was actually pretty so in 1998 when India first officially became a nuclear power um, I was actually pretty shocked. This I was in United States already. I was attending university. I was I was uh, I think second year, third year uh, student at Caltech, and I heard about uh, the news. I mean, I I wasn't surprised. You know, like I mean, India is a large, powerful con uh, country that uh, you know you probably wants nuclear weapon. It's very understandable. But what I was really surprised about was. Then uh, Indian Defense Minister uh, uh, Fernandez, his uh, rationale for the nuclear test was that uh, the threat that China posed to India. That was a shock to me in 1998 to read about that because I never considered uh, that. I never thought that India would see China as a big threat. You know, I, I understand there was always a beef between India and Pakistan, right? And then also I kind of vaguely aware, you know, China was playing the the power balancing game in subcontinent by by getting close with Pakistan and also other Indian neighbors like uh, Bangladesh, uh, Nepal, and Sri Lanka. I mean, uh, you know, kind of, you know, contain India, if you will. I, I'm kind of vaguely aware of that, but I didn't, um, I, I was still surprised that that uh, it was articulated by Defense Minister of India, uh, no less, about China as the existential threat to India. Because I never thought that the two were <laughs> engaged in kind of life and death struggle, right? I mean, this is uh, sure there's some border tensions, but it didn't seem like this. Uh, it, it it's not like the, any kind of like the the ideological battle in the Cold War between like the Soviet camp and the Western camp, it was, um, it was some, you know, some border issue that didn't even seem like that, that important at the time. Um, but now I come to understand, you know, border issue very much defined the relationship between 
between China and India, because as we understand, you know, China and India did go through this brief honeymoon period of Hindi, Chini, bye bye, right? In, in 1950s, when Nehru, um, you know, reached out basically to China because Nehru wanted China to be part of the aligning, non aligned movement, which Nehru was head of. And and then um, you know it's so so it really was a mystery why that kind of relationship broke down and of course that relationship broke down because you know the the revolt in Tibet and also the the nineteen sixty two border war and and then um, and then you know that kind of uh, totally there was a total one hundred eighty degree shift in the Chinese foreign policy towards subcontinent because before nineteen sixty two. China and Pakistan were, has pretty hostile relations, uh, you know, because Pakistan being a very, a very anti-communist state, um, and then, but but the, the relationship did a 180 after 1962 India-China war. You know, Pakistan certainly reached out, uh, reached out olive branch to China, and then the two side quickly formalized the, the border, and then there was a building of the the road. Uh, Karakoram Highway linking Xinjiang of China to Pakistan, and then you know that that relationship quickly became cemented to 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 be very close, and that was a response to the 1962 India-China war, and so that I mean that's kind of the long long-range aftermath of that 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 border issue, and then and this this spills over today right now like ever since you know china kind of played the the kind of the like a like a balancing game a power balancing game on subcontinent you know trying to uh form relation you know close relations with uh with all india's neighbors right bangladesh nepal sri lanka pakistan and so so it's in a way it's understandable that the india may feel boxed in and and that China was trying to contain its ambition in the similar vein that China feels the United States is trying to contain China by working with all the Chinese neighbors in Southeast Asia and Northeast Asia. Um, and 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 I, I, in my view, because this is my personal view, uh, that India today in 2020 is in a sort of geopolitical sweet spot that China enjoyed in 1980s. So, so in, in 1980s, China was being courted by both United States uh, to join its anti-Soviet camp, and also being courted by Soviet Union because you know Soviet Union was trying to repair the relationship, so so um, it doesn't have to worry about this Asian flank of the Cold War, and that um, that eventually, you know, you know. China was getting goodies from both sides. And I, I think India uh, today is kind of analogous to, to China in 1980s because now United States perceived China as a threat to its own hegemony in, in, in Asia. And the United States is trying to form this alliance to contain China and you very much want to sign India on, on board, that's that's whole idea of the so-called Indo-Pacific and the the Quad, right? The Quad, so-called Quad of Democracies. That's Japan, India, U.S., and Australia to contain China. 
Um, and, but on, on, on side of China, China, of course, do not want to see that happen. And, 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 and China also recognizes that India is its own great regional power. So it's trying to appeal, appeal I think, to that side of the, the, the Indian foreign policy that, that you, at least to have India at least to stay neutral between this U.S. Uh, China fight and also China. In addition, China want India to be part of this Belt and Road Initiative to for this uh, economic integration that kind of with 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 its center in China, and and so that's why you see this uh, kind of the, the Xi Jinping and Modi meeting in the last few years. I mean, I think there's a there's a will sort of on both sides trying to normalize that relationship. To a certain extent, and and but but again, you know, China is very different from India in, in its political culture. I mean, China may have very different public opinions uh, about India, but you know, but, but decision makers in Beijing they don't have to take into account the public opinion as much uh, as the case of India because India is a democracy. It has Anyway, so so Carl, I actually wanted to get into now into the American question. So here's my here's my uh, question to you. Uh, let us dig into the American relationship. Obviously, we've understood the uh, the the Chinese perspective when it comes to India and how China looks at India, and uh, in fact, uh, how China perceives India and the overall narrative surrounding it. But my, my question to you was now about the Chinese gaze when it comes to not only America, but to the Western world in general. So obviously China, as you rightly mentioned, that when it comes to China trying to, uh, you know, go further ahead economically and geopolitically, it looks at uh, itself as uh, competing with the West and especially with America. But uh, my, my question was more on the cultural side, like... Uh, when when china goes about uh, selling itself to the rest of the world like i'll give you an example of america right so every every culture has an essence and when it comes to america their essence seems to be freedom and equality and we are the society that does abc and that's how we do it we are a democracy stuff like that so what is the chinese perception of american culture american society the way they do things and uh, what wh how do they maneuver around that that was my question Ah, okay. That's a big question, actually, um, because you know, like the, the the Chinese perception of U.S. and a broader West also evolved over the years, right? I mean, I can talk about 1980s when I was growing up in China. Um, this was a time when you know, just right after the end of Cultural Revolution. So during the Cultural Revolution, the Chinese people have been told that. You know, the West is a terrible place that, you know, people in the West are living. There's a Chinese phrase called Sui Sen Huo Zhe Like literally people are living in, in, uh, in, in fire and water, right? And then the, like, like it's people are, like the working class of the West are being oppressed and, 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 and having a hard time. And, you know, this, uh, it's a deep, West is a deeply racist society. It oppresses its minority population. And then um, by 1980s, it was a 180 shift because 
you know, this was when, uh, you know, I, this come after Nixon visited China in 1972. And then, uh, you know, the, the passing away of Mao and then ending of Cultural Revolution. So suddenly China finds itself with, you know, allying with U.S. and the Western camp, you know, against the Soviet Union in the cold, in the latter late phase of the Cold War. And, and, and now West became a place that's to be emulated. Uh, you know, the, like the, 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 a lot of the Chinese people, especially college students and intel, uh, intelligentsia, they're, they're uh, you know, being exposed to the life in the West for the first time, you know, whether it's through television, uh, movies, or, uh, you know, going abroad and visit. And what they realized was that, uh, you know, in very sharp contrast to the propaganda that they had been fed, uh, in the past about U.S., you know, U.S. is almost light years. It seems almost light years ahead of China in in terms of uh, development and uh, and and also personal freedom, right? And that created a shock, right? And and that that to the point that uh, you know people because like people have felt they've been fed lies all these years about the West. Um, now they just out in the 80s they, they they have more trust actually in in in, uh, in English language media in you know BBC or Voice of America um, you know, back then they they both both had a broadcast into China you know I remember my my grandfather listening to VOA and BBC on radio and and they had more credibility than the, the Chinese state media um, and and then, uh, you know, a lot of people kind of want to have that life. They want to have that, uh, both the, the, the economic prosperity of the West, and they also want to have more personal freedom that they, they, they feel the Westerners have. And eventually that led to 1989 Tiananmen Square protest, right? Which I was in China at the time as a 12, 13 year old. When that happened, and and um, you know, and you know, even after um, after the crackdown of the protest uh, after June fourth, nineteen twenty nine, there's still um, you know, kind of almost a blind trust of of U.S. I mean, like you you have to realize that that the uh, you know. Back in 19, 1960s, 70s, uh, you know, America was painted almost as this evil place. And then um, when U.S. and China started to enjoy their honeymoon period in the 1980s, uh, the narrative changed, even in the state media, because like now more emphasis was placed on um, the China-U.S. cooperation during World War II, right? How how U.S. helped China uh, against against uh, Japanese invasion in World War II, and and I was in 1980s right around the time, and there were you know movies and TV series all made about kind of the special relationship, and 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 you know people believe that U.S. was a benign power, you know the U.S. is friends of the Chinese people. Um, that start that started to change in the 1990s. Um, this this, st this started 
start to the, the shift start gradually but um i mean it started with the the pope in the beginning there was a post 1989 western sanctions on china and then um you know the, the when when bill clinton came to became president of the united states you know he gave the speech about he will no longer tolerate uh the butcher butcher of beijing right it's a famous speech oh, of course once he became president his his china policy is not that different from the previous president and that that has been a feature of us right like the, what what the uh, would be president say in, on the election tour is very different uh once they're in office i mean the the, the us china uh relation has been pretty stable i mean even after 1989 tm protests because right after 1989 tm protests bush senior actually sent a, a, a team a secret team to beijing headed by his uh, security national security advisor brent snowcraft um about to basically assure Deng Xiaoping that this, this special relationship will continue. And he did. Um, and then, but again, you know, US is like India, it's a democracy. There's opposing voices, right? There's always uh, the opposing voices and, and and you know, people continually to express um, concerns about, you know, China's human rights record, uh, so on and so forth. And and that that's why you know the Clinton made an election issue during his during his campaign, um, but I think a big shift happened around two thousand eight. I mean, I lived in United States for thirty years. Um, you know, the the first half of my time in U.S. like back in nineties, even two thousand, early two thousand, China was seen like in, in you Americans' imagination of China. China was still kind of either this place from. 19th century <laughs> during the colonial time or or as uh, this place in in like uh 1960s you know in the maoist era when everyone wears the mao hat or mao suit uh i mean like like there's almost like a time lag perception in us of what what china uh what what the current situation in china was and then 2008 uh olympics that was held in beijing and that was televised you know into american homes everywhere and i think that that was a drastic shift in the american perception and then then you know because china wanted to use beijing olympics as a window to kind of showcase its development you know how, how far china has come but at other on the other hand uh you know to this was during the financial crisis and start of the Great Recession in U.S., right? So suddenly the narrative of rising China gets transformed somehow to, uh, you know, China will eat our lunch, right? The U.S. is on decline and China is on the rise. And then, you know, China threat suddenly became very real. And, and that had played a role in the American election, uh, electoral politics ever since. Right. And, and now it's in 2020, we we're to the point where uh, both the Democrats and the Republicans are, are blaming each other for not 
being tough enough on China. You know, they, they, they accuse each other of being weak on China. So now, now U.S. see China as a, as a competitor. You know, like a a, a near peer competitor. That that's it's this trajectory that's going to catch up with U.S. And, and a lot of people in in U.S. find that deeply worrying uh, because that that. A uh, lot of people kind of grew up with this uh, comforting notion that U.S. hegemony will continue, and then uh, kind of the U.S.-dominated post-Cold War world will continue. That—that's how we got the you know Francis Fukuyama's book, uh, "End of History," right? And then, but but now we know in 2020, this is not the end of history. History is forever evolving. Now there's a fear and panic. That that you know the China is is pulling ahead is is rising America is on decline and then uh, you know with that you know American hegemony in the America's position in the world is under threat and some some people even feel the American way of life is under threat I, I think that's widely exaggerated but but especially the the the. Ch- the the hawk faction, right? The China hawks in in Washington, they kind of like to sell the story that somehow China's rise is going to restrict the freedom of American people in United States. That's 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 a case being made about Huawei, right? How Huawei is going to be um, be dangerous, and all these Chinese tech com- companies going to be used to gather information on on you know uh, your uh, your your average Americans. And and I think that that's to a way that's been used to sell a certain narrative. So now we're we're entering a phase where US is basically trying to usher a new phase of Cold War to mainly to contain China's rise. Um, and and that's how we have we already mentioned earlier there's a there's a so-called quad, the forming of the, the pseudo-military alliance right between us uh, japan australia and india that's has been much talk about in washington right because people feel okay if us is not strong enough to to face china alone then then us is going to need allies to build this alliance network to contain china i mean now now we're that that dynamic is not lost on the chinese populace of course and, and like i mentioned back in the 80s where people when people are have placed more faith in the U.S. media and 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 believe that U.S. is a friend of the Chinese people, that's not no longer the case in China today. I mean, this this happened, um, you know, uh, it's it's a gradual process. But you know, with nineteen, especially with nineteen nineteen ninety nine, the U.S. bombing of Chinese embassy in Belgrade. That that was a big shift. Uh, sh- uh, that was a big turning point. I mean, like uh, on one side, the Chinese youth who grew up after Cultural Revolution, they have seen the economic change, economic development taking place in China. They 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 grew up in a more confident China, a more prosperous China, and they see U.S. attempt as uh, as what it is. It's an attempt to contain China's rise, and and then they start to see. U.S. as competitor, as, as as a competitor trying to uh, just using the human human rights as an excuse to play geopolitics. Um, so, so this this basically U.S. has lost the public relation battle for the hearts and mind among the Chinese people at this point. I would say because um, 
you know, the, in China today, uh, you know, CNN, as you know, New York Times, Washington Journal, uh, you know, Wall Street Journals, uh, Washington Post, etc. They don't enjoy uh, sterling reputation like they used to. Let's say, um, and and they see, you know, that's how the Chinese public sees U.S. today. They, they sees U.S. is trying to contain China, and and then, but they see China's rise as just China. Taking its rightful place, you know, because China had gone through this period of so-called century of humiliation, you know, through this period of colonialism when it was beaten down by different foreign powers, mostly from the West, right? West plus Japan, and now when 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 China is ready to kind of resume its place um, as a leading power in East Asia, now now U.S. is trying to stop that process. So so so. The Chinese public is quite resentful. Right, so I I have a question here, Carl. So I get the the, the Chinese perception here, and the Chinese uh, people uh, find uh, uh, the American uh, uh, you know painting of the way the Chinese are uh, as a uh, as something of a threat to them. But here's uh, so let me paint this picture. So obviously the world is uh, not. Uh, you know, used to the idea of multiple polar poles of power, right? Uh, the world has basically been uh, looking at a very steady way where uh, at least since the last 100 years, the Anglosphere has been pretty much in control with, with the British. And then post-World War II, you have had the rise of the American uh, hegemony. And uh, this is how people uh, present this case, right? The world needs a policeman and uh, if there was a policeman, people say we would prefer a democratic America over a communist China. So when such kinds of accusations are made on China, what what, what kind of a response uh, is given uh, from the Chinese end? And well, what, so what would be the Chinese rationale when somebody says, look, the rise of China comes with the rise of communism. Uh, it could be perceived as a threatened freedom of expression, etc., etc. So how do the Chinese take it? And what is the Chinese reply? to that uh yeah that's a very good question um because this is always uh, posed as kind of a binary choice right you either accept uh, the current arrangement with the u.s as a, the head it's not perfect but again you know people are <laughs> living with it right with like unknown chinese domination of the world which bring a lot of fear because we know China is a one-party state, and you know we we have all this these freedoms that we we take for granted that we don't know what's going to happen to them. But again, you know, from the China's perspective, uh, this is I think that, that also this direct this kind of it's kind of reflective of the worldview of U.S. Because in my opinion, you know, U.S. kind of it's very natural to assume. That everybody um, ha have the same perception and the same drive, you know. Uh, that that you know because U.S. dominated the world, then the, the 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 Chinese must do the same. From the from the Chinese perspective, what China is China has never even uh, proposed that they're going to dominate the world. What, what China prefer is a multipolar world, right? Where where there's no overwhelming power uh, of of US hegemon uh, at the head but we're like it's a multipolar world where there's uh, 
there's a different pulse of power, you know, be whether it be Russia, China, U.S., uh, and even India, right? Each in its have its own in its own kind of um, regions, be a regional power. I mean, that's what what China kind of want all along. It's China wants to be wants U.S. out of East Asia, right? Because China sees East Asia as this kind of the you know China has been the preeminent power in East Asia for thousands of years until the Westerners come along until like the Opium War, right? Not China off its high horses. China kind of want to return the world back to the pre pre nineteenth century, right? Where, where China was the preeminent power in East Asia, and and to do that, you know, China want to remove. Uh, U.S. from from the scene, from from East Asia, but China didn't doesn't really have a vision of kind of like the the Pax Seneca, the way that that the Pax Americana that that the U.S. would like to 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 impose on on the world, right? To do to to put liberal, I mean American liberalism everywhere. Um, that 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 was that's you know one cornerstone of Chinese foreign policy has been the non-interference non-interference policy right which means uh, you know sovereign state should mind their own business should not get get into get into other states business and, and that's that's what China advocated all along I mean you can you can make an argument about how that's self-serving because you know U.S. is at, at in, in in terms of power dynamic you know U.S has much more power and also most often tend to interfere in other states business whereas you know china is not there yet but it's it's uh i it, again you know you, you, to to many other nations that may be tired of u.s interference that that, that that's could be, be attractive you know you know right now china doesn't um in contrast to U.S., which often lecture other nations about human rights, about uh, environment, or whatever more issue of the day, you know, China's foreign policy since Cultural Revolution has not been ideological. It's rather pragmatic. You will deal with whoever legitimate government is. You know, so 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 from China's perspective, it's it is agnostic to. Who is ahead of India, right? Whether BJP or Congress party doesn't matter. It's a India is a giant neighbor that China will have to deal with. So whoever becomes ahead of India, China will will have to deal with them. Um, and then that what China offer again, you know, there's a long non interference policy is that you know China will not interfere into your own domestic affairs. You know, each each person each each stay mind its own business right so so china doesn't want the west to poke their noses in china you know whether it's about tibet or xinjiang or about hong kong and china in return china doesn't doesn't really interfere with say electoral politics of other countries right and that so that is really the the china chinese model if you can call it that you know that you know china is not arguing for uh, it to replace U.S. as a world policeman, right? For in, in the Chinese formulation of the of the world is why there needs to be a single policeman of the world, right? I mean that that doesn't make sense. Why you know there there could be multiple independent powers, you know, postal power like you know European Union, uh, Russia, China, India, 
you know, I, I don't know how how China will really feel about a more independent Japan, but um, <laughs> but the you know that that is an idea. That is an idea that that each state is sovereign, uh, mind its own business, uh, and and there will be no uh, you know coercion, right? Like you know, the, the human rights will not be used as an excuse to clobber a state into submission. So that that is, but you know, China is not very good at at kind of make presenting its case. So you know, mostly we hear in the English language media is kind of this uh, fear propagated by by many upholder of the U.S. hegemony because people are so people are making the case. You know, U.S. hegemony may be bad, but Chinese hegemony will be even worse. You know, you won't you won't even have freedom to to post online, but uh, that I, I don't see that as a case because right now much can be said about you know how China treats its own citizens. Uh, you know whatever restriction China have it's mostly on within the confines of People's Republic of China, China's borders, and, and and like I don't see them trying to export the so-called China Chinese model elsewhere. In fact, that. Uh, I think that's the fundamental difference between China and India. So, Carl, I actually wanted to talk about another acquisition on China that uh, a lot of people lay on them, which is uh, in uh, in diplomatic uh, discussions. It's called uh, debt trap diplomacy, right? Uh, you know what debt trap diplomacy is, basically, where you know China has outstanding claims over. I think around 5% of the global GDP this is like $1.5 trillion in loan. And they are the world's largest lender. So basically you lend, lend, lend. Like uh, let's let's say the Chinese, uh, uh, you know, they basically use debt as an instrument of foreign policy. They'll purchase key assets across the African continent. And then, then uh, those loans are then used for... Uh, different kinds of cases where it, it is used the muscle power of the money is then used to muzzle a lot of other policy decisions in those countries so so when i talk about the fear when it comes to china uh, i i hear your point that okay you know the chinese are are not interested right now to import their model on other kinds uh, other nations or other countries but but uh if you would look at it from the other nations perspective that even something like a debt trap diplomacy uh thing where eventually if you are in such a debt trap and china is the lender and you basically have no other way out you might have to compromise on many other areas so how would a chinese uh response to that would uh, so my my question is what would be the chinese response to that be yeah, that, that's a great question. I mean, this debt policy, debt trap policy, has been done to death in the English language media for the last couple of years. I mean, this is related to China's Belt Belt and Road Initiatives, right? Which basically uh, involve like China uh, pushing a lot of investment, especially in infrastructures in many many. Uh, developing countries in, in Africa, but as well as in Southeast Asia. Uh, and and the, the, the example that, you know, most often being held up is this uh, particular case in Sri Lanka, right? So basically what happened was, uh, you, know, uh, you know, China has put in money to develop a, a, a port 
in Sri Lanka, and but you know, Sri, Sri Lanka had a change uh, in government, and then they realized, okay, they're they're not going to be able to repay the loans, and so they renegotiate the deal, which basically allow um, in, in return for the to, to to for like a loan payment, basically China gained a ninety nine year lease on that port, right? So this was kind of used as a primary example of how China use uh, so-called debt diplomacy to gain asset in other countries. So, I mean, so far, that has been the only example. I mean, that that's the, the, the case of Sri Lanka. So, so you, the case can be made. Sri Lanka was an exception rather than a rule, right? I mean, like, because China has this Belt and Road Initiative is involved many, many countries across the world, from, from Africa to Latin America. And um, uh, like, uh, let me just talk about the the what really what what was it in China to do this to 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 do to initiate Belt Belt and Road Initiative, right? And and I mean, is it really just to use the debt as a trap to 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 kind of bend country to their will? Uh, I mean, that's a lot of money we're talking about. I mean, like, what what really drives China is because. China has at the point of its development where it has excessive capacity, right? And like, you know, for, for decades, China kind of geared its economy for like an export-oriented model to export to markets of developed world like, like Europe and, and the United States, primarily in North America. And what, you know, at the lesson of the great financial crisis in 2008 is that uh, you know, there's only so much <laughs> Chinese products this market could absorb, right? So, so, but China already built up this excessive capacity. It needs to find outlets for these Chinese products. So this idea of Belt and Road Initiative was formed. That the idea is they will um, build infrastructures in in other developing nations in Africa, Latin America, Southeast Asia, the rest of the global South to um, speed up integration with the Chinese economy. It, it serves a couple purposes. Enable penetration of the Chinese capital and it also uh, offer an opportunity kind of to export this China's excessive capacity. As I mentioned, you know, China, China has been building, building, building. It built some amazing infrastructure within China. But at the, at today, in 2020, I mean, there's only so many roads, high-speed railways and, 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 and roads you can build in China. You know, it's to a point where finally China has been built out. But at this point, through the last decades of, of this massive building of infrastructure, China has built up a lot of companies, a lot of suppliers to kind of keep this economy going. And now that China has been built out, it, it, it looks for, it's kind of, it's capitalism, right? <laughs> it's, this is just like capitalism 101. They need to export this excess, excessive capacity. So, how they do it is they they um, they take Chinese uh, Chinese banks will finance a, a, a say a road project in in Africa in an African nation, and the African government will take these loans and then uh, usually that the loan will specify you know 
the, the, the Chinese contractors will get the bid, and then they then the, the the Chinese builders will come in. They will build the road with Chinese equipment. So in a lot of ways, this money gets recycled back into China, uh, but also you know the jobs, 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 right? <laughs> these these Chinese companies are being kept float by you know instead of building inside china now they're building in africa now the idea is by building these ports and roads uh railroads and infrastructure that they will open these markets uh you know for 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 future chinese products right like these are these are the, the billions of consumers in the global south right that, that they you know many of them couldn't afford the top of the line iphone but they could buy cheaper Chinese made phones, right? I mean, in fact, the, the, the Chinese made the smartphones and the Chinese uh, telephone, telecommunication infrastructure really led a revolution in Africa, right? And, and this is all ties within this, uh, uh, you know, Chinese financing of this, this infrastructure. Still, it's, it's like, it's um, things that, that, that China, China hold close, like like Taiwan issue, right? Which China consider a domestic issue. So so yes, so if China is loaning you billions of dollars, China probably would expect these countries not to recognize Taiwan as a country, and they will probably not like it if, if these countries invite, say, Dalai Lama to give a talk, right? So, but these these are the issues that China care about. It's it, China care about uh, issues that could potentially impact itself domestically. And you will use its diplomatic muscles, uh, including its financial muscles to make sure, uh, you know, like you know, China has done this, not just in Africa, but in, in European nation as well. You know, there was a case where Norway was uh, invited Dalai Lama to give a talk. And then in response, you know, China boycotted uh, uh, salmon imports from Norway for several years until, Basically, Norway came, came around, and and yes, I mean this is really no different from how any other countries like United States, you know, use diplomacy to serve its own interests. I mean, it, it, it's quite. I think it's it's still quite a stretch to say that they're trying to interfere in domestic. Uh, policy the way that that u.s does like say in venezuela right to, for for u.s sponsoring color revolution everywhere i mean i mean what what china just wants is for people for country other country to to deny uh diplomatic re, uh, relations to taiwan to recognize that you know prc is the sole legitimate government of china which includes taiwan and to recognize that you know, Tibet is part of China, and also China doesn't want <laughs> other country to be platform to Dalai Lama. So that's 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 the thing that China care about is they care about things that affects China domestically, um, and then then you will use whatever means to 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 achieve those objectives. But by and large, you could care less about how the other countries run their own affairs. Right. I mean, I mean, does that does that make sense? Yeah, but I just had a follow up to that then. But uh, but here's uh, then here's the counter somebody might give to China. Right. Uh, um, 
uh, you give some, you take some, right? But the, the problem is China does not support any globally recognized sustainable, you know, transparent lending practices like the International Monetary Fund or uh, the World Bank or the Paris Club, or even when it comes to, you know, the, uh, you know dealing with China, there, there seems to be this unwillingness to... Uh, deal in a common, uh, you know, one currency kind of a system or a rule of law kind of a system. So, so what what would be the Chinese response to that? Because diplomacy, at the end of the day, Carl, is a bit of give and take, right? So, if China wants people to maybe uh, ignore Taiwan and uh, Dalai Lama, don't you think China also has to give in a little bit when it comes to uh, issues like uh, the ones I've mentioned, where it's about you know what about the, the you know transparent lending practices and stuff like that? Uh, that's a great question. In fact, you know China has got to the point where it is by playing within the rule. Um, kind of the, 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 by playing the globalization rule that was set up by U.S. and and the West, right? I mean, I mean, China would very much like to continue to play a role in IMF, World Bank, but U.S. is the one that actually actively opposed uh, China taking large part in in organization like IMF and World Bank, and that's the whole reason that China went off on its own and started the own the Asian uh, what is it AIIB um, Asian Investment and uh, well I forgot what the acronym is for um, Investment Development Bank this is this uh, and and that's that's why you know China started to propose a, a new uh, financial uh, system and arrangement be, between the BRICS countries right between Brazil uh, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. And the, the, the reason, you know, it's China is perfectly fine playing by the rule of international system. I mean, in fact, China got to where it is today by playing those post-Cold War rules. You know, you know China was, uh, you know, China liked globalization because <laughs> globalization benefited China. I mean, that, that, that's how, how China developed so rapidly. But, but now we're at the point where U.S. sees, you know, U.S. is in a way is status quo power, right? Because U.S. enjoy its current position as a global hegemon. And, and U.S. sees China as, as a challenger. So it tried to place limit on, on China, you know, like the, 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 there was often talk about uh, one U.S. Uh, diplomat talk, uh, give a famous formulation about, you know, China needs to be a responsible shareholder, right? We'll, uh, but right now in the current climate in 2020, you know, China is actively limiting, uh, U.S. is actually uh, limiting China's participation in international system, and and this goes beyond even you know financial system, but you know even the international space station, U.S. has denied China to take a part in the international space station, and that's why now China is building its own, it's building its own Chinese uh, space station. But China also invited uh, European Union and Russia to to participate. And the only reason that China is doing that is because U.S. is the one that actively lobbied against Chinese participation. So again, you know, China would be fine 
with working with the confine of the current international system. That 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 has worked for China in the past 30, 40 years. You know, that that's that's how China got where it is today by by opening up its economies, by um, by um, participating in the global latest round of globalization. But again, you know, like that that um, you, you, you know, I mean like you say, it should diplomacy should be give and take, right? What China wants is basically its own place under the sun, right? It's its own own uh, place at the table. But right now, U.S. is actively denying China that place, and and that's that's where we're today. That's why we are entering a new phase of the Cold War right now. Hey, Carl. So I guess. Uh... You know, you've been nice enough. Uh, I've taken a lot of your time. It is almost one hour and uh, 20, 22 minutes in the podcast. So uh, I just wanted to uh, ask you one last question. So, about, and this is nothing to do with China or America or India in general. I, I actually wanted to, uh, wanted you to talk about your podcast a little more. So when did you start the podcast and why did you start and what are your next uh, goals when it comes to uh, the Silk and Steel podcast? So, so before we wrap things up, I actually wanted you to tell everyone about it. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, so I originally got invited to appear on Radio Warner uh, podcast, which is a podcast about wars and conflict. And, and that's something I'm interested in. But I was invited to to give a talk about a particular um, particular episode in Chinese history about the Taiping Rebellion in 19th century, the largest and bloodiest civil war of 19th century. And I, to my great surprise, there were a lot of listeners of his show enjoyed uh, my content. And I, I, I'm shocked that people actually would listen to what I have to say. And, and it's always, um, uh, always a goal of mine to, you know, to talk about Chinese history and culture, because that's what I feel most passionate about. And, you know, like the, the, the only reason I even talk about geopolitics is, is because right now there's such a, rising tide of xenophobia, especially within the United States. And and I just feel like, especially in the English language medium, right, there's, there's a whole bunch of Western people talking about China. <laughs> I wanted to give a Chinese voice, a Chinese perspective, right, to, 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 to tell the Chinese story, to, to also to give a a context, because I believe a context is very important. A lot of people talk about China as it exists in a vacuum, but without taking into account of China's developmental history. And that's why I wanted to give a very comprehensive overview of China. You know, I want to talk, talk about history of China. I want to talk about culture of China and that is my main goal all right guys so you know the drill if you like what I'm doing at the Charvak podcast please support me uh, either on Patreon if you're watching it on YouTube you can see the link on the screen if you're listening to the audio version you can go to www.patreon.com slash Charvak you can also join the YouTube membership program uh, once again uh, 
Uh, I apologize for the audio problems in this podcast. We were having slight internet difficulties. That's why we could not end the podcast properly. Unfortunately, Carl's uh, internet kind of crashed. But uh, uh, Carl's an interesting guy. I, I would recommend all of you to go and check his podcast out. I'll leave all the details of Carl's podcast at the end of the in the description uh, of the podcast of the page, either on SoundCloud, wherever you guys check. You know, you can just go on the description and check out Carl's podcast. And until then, I'll see you next time. Namaste. Take care. Goodbye.